0: I was amazed at how much I didn't know. I thought, oh, you know, this is a well-to-do town in the wealthiest nation in the world. How bad can it be? It was bad.
1: On this podcast, we share inspirational stories, unique strategies, and the life lessons from entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and innovators in our communities who have transformed their lives and the community around them. Hi. My name is Kevin LePage, and you're listening to Exponentialists On Air. Today on Exponentialists On Air, we have Mita Kothare. Her path has taken her from growing up in India to teaching corporate finance, and after a revelation of sorts, she sensed that she needed something more from her career, so she left and went to work at a new local nonprofit empowering women's philanthropic efforts in Austin. This started her on her journey in the nonprofit sector, and I'm extremely excited for her next journey to be right here on this show. Sometimes you find quote-unquote self-proclaimed experts in fields where I am the one proclaiming Mita the expert in social entrepreneurship, as you'll soon find out. Mita, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Okay, so first I want to throw out a Uh, A little easy question to ease us in. Um, What is your definition of entrepreneurship? And then um, what's your interpretation of social entrepreneurship?
0: So, you know, at one level, all new businesses could be characterized as entrepreneurships and their owners as entrepreneurs. So really starting any new business, taking its risk, taking the risk of ownership and running it could be considered entrepreneurship. But in economics, we broadened that definition. At some point, there was um, our famous economist, Schumpeter, who said that it was really about taking ideas and inventions and making an innovation out of it, primarily a business innovation. And that's a little different. It's, what it's saying is that entrepreneurs really are the force of creative destruction, that they change the status quo and lead us to a new equilibrium. And that's the kind of definition that we have embraced a lot in the field of entrepreneurship. I think uh, we think of entrepreneurship generally as something that changes the equilibrium, that makes things better, that changes the way we use products, the way we live our lives, the way we think about our connections to cultures and society. So social entrepreneurship then becomes entrepreneurship for social good. It doesn't just incorporate social but also environmental. So any business innovation that leads to, or any innovation, whether it's in business or nonprofit, that leads to to social and environmental impact is considered social entrepreneurship. So something that changes the equilibrium for underserved communities, that changes the equilibrium for our planet. Um, that leads to more community voices, um, leads to a more just equilibrium, to, that leads to more productive opportunities, to a better quality of life for disadvantaged populations, that would all be um, entrepreneurship in the social innovation sense. So those are the two sort of um, not necessarily contradictory, but slightly different definitions of entrepreneurship.
1: Perfect. Um, and that's kind of branching off of, I guess, the the three P's: the people, planet, and profit. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the uh, the triple bottom line, right? Of uh, that people are starting to see in businesses nowadays.
0: Yes, actually, that is true, and that's um, that's sort of the second aspect of entrepreneurship that we think about. It's not just a lone entrepreneur necessarily. Entrepreneurship, in some sense, is a mindset. Mm-hmm. So it is about rapid innovation. So anybody can be entrepreneurially minded. So a nonprofit leader could be entrepreneurially minded. It could be someone in a large company making change, um, who we typically call an entrepreneur. Okay. And yeah. so, um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So when you think about people, planet and profits, we're really thinking about businesses that are incorporating the idea that they have to take care of society and the planet while making profits. And that is, Inclusion has happened at different levels in different companies. So, some companies will do some philanthropy or do some volunteer day and say, Oh, look, we're doing CSR, which is corporate Mm -hmm. social responsibility, and say that we care about people and planet. But that's sort of a very superficial level of it. Then there are companies that are incorporating it very deeply into their strategy. And that's getting to the corporate sustainability movement. And then there's the next level where there are more and more companies thinking about the circular economy, which is basically saying we are not just in charge of our product until it gets to the consumer, but also through its entire life cycle. What happens with the waste? Where is it recycled? How is it reused? How is it put back? So that if by doing so, we can create a regenerative product for the planet not just take from the planet but put back into it and that's the next level we hope that all companies will go to
1: wow yeah um that's a little talking about the creative destruction but kind of well, I guess destruction, environment, that's not exactly the right terminology we want to use there. For but... environment, yes. <laughs> right, but creative destruction and yes. our, our, the mindset towards the right. environment. All right, so my next question, what kind of obstacles have you faced in your life as you grew up and went through your early life and early career trajectory before you ended up getting to UT?
0: Wow, that's a huge question to unpack, but um, I'm kind of dating myself by saying that, I suppose. Um, In my career, it's been um, a lot of different things and different journeys, but I grew up in Mumbai, in India, Mm -hmm. in a family with uh, very little um, in terms of financial health. We lived paycheck to paycheck, and um, which wasn't unusual for a number of lower-middle-class families in India at the time, but that meant that everybody faced scarcity. Education was important, of course, to my parents, and at the same time, they didn't really you know, there's the stereotype of the Asian parent pushing their kids to do a lot. And that was never the case. I mean, that's not really an accurate stereotype in the first place. I think we see pockets of it, especially among immigrants and so on. But for the country as a whole, it's not true at all. So my parents were, yeah, do whatever. And um, I was um, very curious uh, right from the beginning. And um, I grew up bilingual, trilingual. I, English wasn't in initially my first language. It's sort of, I mean, that's kind of an odd statement. Only a person from, of Indian origin can say that. Um, it's technically not my native language, but I studied in an English medium school. Mm-hmm. So I consider it my first language in some ways. But growing up that way and um, just learning even to read was an interesting um experience you know you go into school the first day of kindergarten you don't understand anything the teacher is saying and you end up crying and that's what I did because I was standing I got so mad that I stood up apparently on the desk itself Mm -hmm. yelling at the teacher about what I needed in Marathi (laughs) so that you know it started life started that way but I had a I had a good school that had great extracurricular activities. And I was always curious and interested in taking every opportunity that came my way. So I did all of that. And then I went to college and I was a good student. So I got into a good college and all of that. But there was never really any direction. Mm -hmm. Um, No one really said to me, you need to do this or you need to do that. Except for my dad, um, who would say, you should go and do medicine. That was about the only career advice I got. And so it was left to me to find my path. Uh, I started to work right away after my undergraduate uh, education, which was unusual in India because in those days there was a huge unemployment rate and people didn't typically get jobs right out of undergrad. So most people who wanted a job needed to do a master's. But I also realized that I didn't have the flexibility. I needed to be contributing to the family income. And so I took on a job and it was in sales and it turned out to be such a great job. I had never imagined that a sales job right out of school would be the best experience to prepare me for the rest of my life, to tell stories, to really bring people on to your vision and to also have that confidence to talk to people. The kind of stuff I was selling needed me to talk to CEOs, and I got to talk to them at the age of 19 and 20, so it was a remarkable experience, Uh, but at that point, I also realized that getting a graduate degree was going to be important, and one way to do that was to get an assistantship at a U.S. university (laughs) and hope to wait tables or something like that to Mm -hmm. make the rest of it work. And that's how I came to the US really on my own, through figuring out the system, figuring out how to get the paperwork, um, all kinds of things. And um, really, you know, without really a path in mind, just all that I knew was I needed to do an MBA. Mm-hmm. I, while I was doing my MBA, some of my professors started to say to me, you know, you seem to do well at finance, you should consider a finance PhD. So that led me to the finance PhD. So um, from there, I came to UT Austin uh, in my first stint at UT Austin, which was in the 90s. And I loved the quantitative side of finance. I loved doing and teaching and thinking and researching finance, but I just didn't really like the end goal, which was at the time maximizing shareholder wealth for managers. It's just how capitalism progressed in the US um, in the 70s, 80s. That's what became the big thing Um, and it was shareholder wealth maximization at all costs. Mm. We didn't care about how we polluted the air or what we did to societies or we didn't care about inequalities and all of that. So I really wanted to use finance for something good and or what good as I saw it. (laughs) Not judging people here. Someone (laughs) needs to do the dirty work at Wall Street but um, and I'm perfectly happy to help people understand how to do that uh, intentionally, consciously, but that intentionality, the consciousness was not there at the time. So I decided I would um, go into the nonprofit sector. So I worked with a philanthropic organization in town and then started my own consulting firm. And that was mostly because through this organization, I had done a lot of organizational development. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm seeing the nonprofit sector and town could, need, it could use this um, and that's how I started it. But soon enough, I got a call from the LBJ school to teach a class in financial innovation for their students. So I created a class called Financial Innovation for Social Impact. At that time, there was a, a movement that was, had started for a while called Impact Investing. And I'd been keeping in touch with that. So I was able to start moving into this field fairly early on. And I started teaching that. Then I realized that all these students on campus were coming to me asking for, about social entrepreneurship, asking about impact investing and all kinds, of, and sustainability and so on. So I started talking to my business school colleagues about social innovation and starting a center at the business school. And a couple of the senior faculty and I, we got together and said, let's launch this. And they said, why don't you lead this? <laughs> and that's how I'm here today. <laughs> That was a long story but then i've had a long career as well (laughs) i told you i was going to date myself
1: thank you very much um and so focus you went from focusing on the corporate finance aspect right which was mainly on uh shareholder wealth yes and then you kind of pivoted towards more of the stakeholder wealth Mm -hmm. and focusing on more stakeholders and Mm -hmm. who actually like benefited and were affected by the companies themselves right And so um, describe a little bit of your time at the nonprofit that you worked with, Impact Austin, correct?
0: Yes, yes. So Impact Austin is a collective giving organization with the vision to train women philanthropists to give philanthropically, but intentionally and well. Women hold the philanthropic purse in many families, and we realized that there was a huge need to help women understand where their philanthropic dollars went how to measure the outcomes and the impact of that, and how to really feel engaged in that philanthropy rather than just write a check at a gala somewhere. Right. And so very early on, I joined the organization a couple of years in, into its existence. Um, we were very thoughtful about it. I, the reason I joined it was because I found the organization to be a very thoughtful learning organization. The idea is that individual women cannot afford to give large, to write large checks, many of us at least. Um, So we decided that each woman would contribute $1,000 towards a highly, high-impactful grant, um, which would be roughly in the order of $100,000, and we would give it to a nonprofit in one of our focus areas. But the process would be that women could contribute the money but also, if they wanted to volunteer on a grant evaluation committee, where they learned how to evaluate grants, how to read financials, and then they would go over, or go on to recommend to the overall membership a couple of finalists, and then the membership would vote. Um, each member gets one vote, regardless of who they are and how they came yeah. into Impact Austin um you it's not a multi-year commitment. you can commit for one year and then walk away. Uh, we just want women to feel informed about their philanthropy. So if they want to suddenly if they decide after being an impact Austin they've learned everything they can and they want to do the do it on their own or they want to volunteer or they have learned enough to now actually work in the sector. Yeah. As I did, for instance. Um, that's fine, too. We measure that as our success. And uh, today, honestly, so much of what I'm doing is related to Impact Austin, not directly in my work. But the fact that I'm here and the realization that I should be thinking about broader ideas came to me through my work at Impact Austin.
1: And that you kind of led straight into my next question, which uh-huh. is what kind of um, insights, what kind of uh, yeah. takeaways for yourself did right. you take away from... Uh, of being directly involved.
0: So it's very interesting. And I tell people this. And if there's one thing I would love to tell your audiences is get involved in your communities as early as you can. We all owe a responsibility. We cannot sit back and say someone else will do it. Do it in any small measure, whether it is giving a small amount of money to an organization that you like, but study it first. And there's so much information now today about given organization, uh, that you can find that information easily. Also, go volunteer and volunteer for something that nourishes your soul. My daughter, when she wanted to volunteer for the longest time, couldn't find anything. And then I said, so why is it bothering you? And she said, I need something that's also intellectually stimulating for me. She was not interested in stacking shelves or playing with pets. And that was not her way of giving it. But then somebody else might want that. They might want that creative release or just the simplicity of it. So ask yourself what it is that engages both your heart and mind and do it. And that's what I got out of it. Just reading so many grant applications taught me so much about the community. We are such a segregated city. And I would consider myself as a professor in a dual career family as a privileged person. We all are, almost anybody who comes to UT, the fact that they were able to get into a prestigious institution tells you that you have some resources that somebody else doesn't have, whether it's of your own intellect or of your material resources. And so it is our responsibility. And I was amazed at how much I didn't know. I thought, oh, you know, this is a well-to-do town in the wealthiest nation in the world. How bad can it be? It was bad. And so I think that that was the big experience. And I realized that we can't just walk around with a form of capitalism that doesn't also address all of these issues. So that was the big learning. And that's how the progress towards what I do today.
1: Perfect. Yeah, and that led you into joining um, your own consulting firm towards uh, nonprofits and socially minded businesses. Yes. Um, what kind of got you going to create your own Th- consulting firm? Where that sense of entrepreneurship come yeah, from? Yeah.
0: You know, it's interesting. I um, people would tell me even when I was in the sales job, you have trouble having a boss, don't you? <laughs> and then I thought about it, and it wasn't trouble as much as impatience. I just felt impatient when people didn't do what I wanted to have done. And I just thought, you know, Impact Austin was an entrepreneurial venture. We started from scratch. And yes, I didn't get in exactly on the ground floor, but pretty soon after, it was a working board. I had to make things up as I went along. Mm -hmm. And I had never felt so much my authentic self. And this is something that if students are hearing this, they will know. Young people often have this um, kind of, and young and old have not just the imposter syndrome where you don't believe that you're capable of doing what you're really doing and that right. people are giving you accolades for nothing. It's also that different thing where you you have this work self and a different personal self. That's how I always felt about work. Mm-hmm. I never felt authentically there I felt like I had to say certain things in class and then I had to do certain things at work and then I had to be a different person at home. And when I did Impact Austin, I realized for the first time that that's what really nourished my spirit, to be able to have a blank slate and be told, go solve this problem, don't come back till you're done. Or what is the problem? Identify this problem for us. Something's not right, but let us know what it is and then solve it also and then come back to us. And that was the biggest joy of my life. And I realized that's where that's what entrepreneurship is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I started. I thought I could have control over what I did, um, control over the vision. And it was really exciting. I really enjoyed it. And I'm very fortunate because I get to do a lot of that even within UT. I always say we are a startup in a large institution. So it's that in, I would consider myself now an intrapreneur as okay, opposed yeah. to a, an entrepreneur because I'm in a large institution.
1: And the consulting firm was is called Neva Solutions. Neva Solutions. Right. And so what were some impactful uh, projects that came yeah. out of
0: your oh, work? I think um, I would love to say that all of them were, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but they were mostly helping a lot of nonprofits uh, working on what really was their core mission. What was it about them that was not available in the community? What would be the essence of why they were there? And if they were not there, what would happen? Getting them to see that was really the most effective thing. And the other part of it, that I realized when I started doing it locally was that a number of our nonprofits don't really see beyond their work. They often don't have a clue about who else is working in the space. And I shouldn't say, I mean, that may come across if one of my nonprofit friends hears that they'd be horrified, but I don't mean it that way. I know that a lot of them work collaboratively, but a lot of not, you know, we are home to one of the largest numbers of nonprofits per capita in the country. We have over 6,000 nonprofits and many start an idea, start because they have an idea and that entrepreneurial spirit, But nonprofit work particularly has to be done in collaboration with others and just helping them find those collaborations. We would get grant proposals in Impact Austin and I would think, oh my God, these guys should really be talking (laughs) to these guys and why aren't they talking? And I can't tell them because there's this confidentiality around the grants process. So that's what I tried to help them do. And I think that was the most impactful thing for me. I also thought that um, the other part was just a lot of executive coaching. That wasn't what I signed up for, but I found that that's what a lot of the leaders needed. Many of them younger than I was, some of them older. Mm -hmm. I just felt that that was, leadership is everything ultimately. And that was kind of um, really more impactful from my perspective as well.
1: Mm -hmm. And when I was looking at the website, I saw a quote on there by Peter Drucker. um, And I thought, fantastic quote. So I'm going to read it and then um, get your thoughts on it. So it's, it is on the social sector that we find the greatest innovation, the greatest results in meeting human needs and what we will do as a sector will determine the health, the quality and the performance of the 21st century society. Yes. Um, so I saw the quote and I was like, wow, OK, yes. Um, go ahead and uh, give me your thoughts on uh, why the quote uh, is impactful to you and yeah. how it made its way on the website.
0: <laughs> wow, that's a, a big question to unpack, <laughs> but an important question for our times. Um, Today, we are living in extreme, um, in a a world of um, very severe climate challenges. Mm -hmm. We are living in a world of extreme social inequality, socioeconomic inequality. Today, the top eight people in the world own as much as the bottom three billion people in the world. Eight individuals, can you imagine? Um, The top 1% own so much wealth compared to 50, 60, 70% of the rest of society. And so how do we continue to foster capitalism when so many people are being left out of the economy? That is the big question of our time. It leads to unrest. It leads to nationalistic behavior. It leads to not just political strife, cultural strife, um, violence. All of that, right? So many things go off, go on when people feel disconnected with the mainstream economy. We've made so much progress, and if that does not reach the vast majority of people on the planet, what uses it? So that's the part that I think is really critical when I think about Peter Drucker's quote. And the other aspect is the climate change issue, right? If we don't address it, today we need more than 10, 12 trillion dollars to be invested in the right way to keep the world from going beyond two degrees warmer than it was in the past. And that's uh, there isn't that much commitment yet in the world. And we are sitting on an absolute horrific danger if we don't do it. And so I think it's very important. I mean, Peter Drucker's words were prescient. There was, um, he knew right then that if we don't do it right by society, that if business doesn't understand that its responsibility is to make lives better, ultimately, not just for the 1%, but for a larger swath of society, we will always have people who are disadvantaged. We will always have poverty to some extent, somewhere in some corner. But the idea that so many people today don't earn even a reasonable wage, even in the US, it's not an equilibrium, even if you want to think about it in the most rational terms, lest someone accuse me of being you know, just emotional about this. I think it's a very um, reasonable economic argument to make today that you can't see progress if you don't have large numbers of people in society not being served by the capitalist economy. And in that sense, it is really important that social innovation takes off and that we do it well and do it and we do it right. Um, that's where the space is that I'm working on.
1: And taking straight from that and and those insights, what advice would you give a someone, a young person today, um trying to get into entrepreneurship? What advice would you give them on uh, maintaining that socially mindedness of it, and mm. trying to focus on the triple bottom line and everything.
0: Ah, yes. Yeah, so um, you probably regret asking me this question now, <laughs> because I have slightly different views than many people, especially the Silicon Valley mentality would suggest. You know, we always talk about fail fast, fail the whole, every kind of fail, whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Or there's no such a thing as a failure, which is that part I agree. But the whole idea of failing quickly and so on is misinterpreted. I think we do need rapid innovation. I think we do need to get away from our sometimes, for instance, the social sector particularly is extremely slow. And particularly when you have to work with policymakers and uh, work with people who are not always trained in the ideas of business. It can be difficult, but it's also, and so it has to be nimble, yes. But being nimble doesn't mean necessarily just this blind, rapid innovation, which is what too often happens. And the reason that's not great in the social sector particularly, but I also feel like sometimes we've all just had drank from the Silicon Valley Kool-Aid a bit too much. It works for certain classes of people in certain areas. But what I like to say to people is, Think about it from a um, reflective practice standpoint. Don't go and do your meditation retreats after you've re- reached some level of success and now you're worrying about where to put that money and so now you need some mental support. Yeah. Think about it at the beginning. What is the role your company is going to play both in advancing society but also in the unintended consequences of your work? And that's the scary part to me for when the idea of failing is repeated over and over again by people. Just go test it, test it, test it. Well, if you keep testing it and you find out it's wrong, oftentimes in the social sector particularly, it is the most disadvantaged people and communities that suffer the consequences of something that has gone wrong. Mm -hmm. And it is important to consider that. So I don't mean that you spin your wheels, but it is important to be a reflective practitioner. Be prone to action, but don't take those, um, you know, cool sound bites in the entrepreneurial world and uh, distort them. So that's the first thing I would say. And that links to the second thing I would like to say is that too often we do things to disadvantaged communities. We somehow have this idea that because we are privileged, we have the answers. It's absolutely wrong. So I think... Any social entrepreneur who's listening out there or any aspiring entrepreneur of any kind who's listening out there, work with the communities that you're seeking to serve. We can't all experience what it means to be disadvantaged, but we can bear witness to it. That's the role of a social entrepreneur. You have to embed yourself with the community. We have young students in our programs who are going out and spending time speaking to 100 plus homeless people. That's the way you do entrepreneurship. You really have to sit down and ask the community, what is it that they want? It's not about what you think they want or what you think they need. That's even worse because that's putting your value judgment on them. Ask them what they need. Come up with a solution. Co-create with community. So those are some of the big things I would tell social entrepreneurs in addition to all the other things that people tell entrepreneurs. Take care of your mental health. Don't make this about you. Like, that's the other part that I see a lot. People want to go save the world to get salvation for themselves. It isn't about you. It isn't about your privilege. It's about your true desire to help society. And if you have a problem with finding that self-realization, go solve that problem first. Get the therapy you need, get the coaching you need, whatever it is. But don't go solving people's problems just because you have a problematic soul yourself. Um And then, you know, the usual thing, networks, 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 uh, the practical realities of it, don't give up. There's a lot, most of the time you're going to be in the trenches, but you'll come up fair only once in a while, be prepared for that long haul. Patience, courage, um, moral courage, all of those things are things that I tell my my students that they need to develop.
1: Yeah. And uh, your first point in talking about really going into the communities and finding out what they need instead of uh, whatever you think they need um that's one point that in our in our rise program that we try yes. to focus on in which um kind of taking from design thinking and trying to bring that empathy into the, yes. the business idea and which right. you're more thinking of all right i th- like for me this is what i think but i actually need to know um what needs to happen
0: yes and i love your rise program actually i've been to i've talked to your students and I judged your finals last mm-hmm. year and it was just, they were amazing. Um, absolutely. That, that empathy, that understanding, the idea of yielding the hand to the community is important. The humility to give it away to a community, to listen to their voices is very critical. Yeah.
1: And I guess continuing off of our conversation and right now you're working directly with the social innovation um, section of UT Austin and right. McCombs and the LBJ school um, and you're working directly with young people. Um, what are some uh, inspiring projects and passions that you've seen come out of your programs and your classes?
0: Oh my gosh so many uh, you know especially in, on the entrepreneurship side I've had students who have suffered so much themselves who've actually gone on to try and solve that problem. You know, I've had students who have medical issues. I have students who have experienced homelessness. I have students who have experienced foster care and have come up with solutions for those very same problems. And those to me are really inspiring. I've had students on the other side who've used technology in such a fast and swift way. In the course of a semester, it just blows my mind. And then we have students who are in our, um, in the CELL um, Fellowship uh, partnership, um, a student organization that runs in partnership with the Social Innovation Initiative. Just this last week, I've met with three of them and uh, they wanted to talk to me. And I'm just like, my goodness, how did you learn about all this? You guys are freshmen and sophomores. So we've had uh, a number of these students. I have a couple of students who are out there running their own startups and everything from blockchain to technology to connect people on um, campuses. So we've seen a lot of those kinds of successes. We've seen a number of students go into jobs that have been exciting um, in companies, work in sustainability. And the most exciting thing for me is the fact that more and more of my students report that what they're studying in our classes that are related to social innovation, my class or somebody else's class, or learning in our experiential programs, they're taking that knowledge to give great interviews to mainstream companies and consulting firms. Mm -hmm. One of my students reported that at at a top-notch consulting firm, I won't say which one, she was asked questions that were all about change management and She said, you know, they didn't refer to it that way necessarily, but it was all about that stuff you talked about in class about social innovation and how to make change and what are the levers to pull and how do you think about getting people on board. She said, it was such an easy interview for me. She got the job. She went there. So that to me is the most exciting part of it. I do want to continue to help people who are directly interested in being social entrepreneurs, directly interested in going for the sustainability jobs in companies. But what's exciting to me is that our programs are allowing students within their curriculums to layer on an extra skill that is very relevant for 21st century jobs. Today, every student needs to come out with some understanding of sustainability no matter which way they come at it understanding the technical side of it understanding how to consider the business risks of it how do you think about water and human rights and safety issues and reputational effects and also consider the opportunities because that's where the new problems that need to be solved today are mostly related to the social and environmental sectors right yeah So really, it is important that every student learns them. And I think that has been the most satisfying part of it all for me that we may actually become so mainstream that I won't have to have a separate initiative. It will just be part of the curriculum.
1: Right. And when I inter- when I interviewed um, Ruvan Kantu, yeah. um, who is uh, yes. also part of UTS yes. faculty, um, he was talking about how hopefully in the future that the term social entrepreneurship just becomes entrepreneurship. entrepreneurship.
0: And it's already showing signs because I will look for great companies that are coming up and I'll browse websites of accelerators and other places and I'll get things in my newsfeed. And I'm amazed at how many of the entrepreneurs, when you really read what they're doing, they're doing what could be easily defined as social entrepreneurship. And for whatever reasons that they're doing it, they may not define it that way, perhaps mm-hmm. also for the funding, depending on which accelerator right. they're part of. I just am amazed that most of them would qualify. So we are getting there because those are the great new problems to solve. And that's what entrepreneurship is about. They're solving problem- problems for a new generation.
1: Um, I wanted to thank you for the interview and all of your insights and your career trajectory. Um, thank you very much for being on the podcast today, Mita.
0: Thank you for inviting me.
1: No official update for Mita, but when Mita was talking about getting into our communities directly to impact them, not waiting on someone else to do it, she seems to have an incredible pulse on the thinking of a lot of younger people these days. The mindset is not to, f- to wait around for the problem to fix itself. My aspiring exponentialist, go out there and start your own socially-minded businesses. But remember, nonprofits are great, but you can still make an enormous impact through a for-profit business, as long as you maintain people, planet, profit, in that order. We should honestly put that on a shirt. Hey Judy, can we put that on a t-shirt? <sighs> yeah, Judy's not here, but when she listens to it, we'll get the ball rolling. All right, thank you so much for listening, and let's hit it with the extra. As always, you can contact us at TheExponentialists.com under the podcast tab if you have any words of wisdom or advice that you would like to give our listeners for the next segment. Also, feel free to recommend any exponentialists you see in your community that
0: could be guests on our podcast.
1: Thanks again for listening,
0: and I'll see y'all next week.